Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of child death. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on our website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi. What's going on? Not a whole lot. It's a uh, kind of a like gray overcast day in Southern California right now. Mm. You know, good. The year is wrapping up, which I'm excited to take a little bit of a break from work over the holidays. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I can very much relate to that part. Uh, it's actually very beautiful over here in New Jersey right now. It's oh yeah, like very sunny and pretty looking out. It's just very cold. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So uh, my heat is pumping. And I have to say, I don't know if you heard it while you were just talking, but um, I've heard it on a few recent recordings. So listeners, <laughs> I live in apartments. <laughs> there are There's a couple with a very young child below us. <laughs> and my room is right above the baby's room. I'm oh, often I've never... hearing the baby crying during um, editing. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, just randomly. And I have the headphones on, so I don't hear it. And I padded my area so much that I don't hear it. So I edit it out as much as I can, but it's it's harder. It, it sounds more unnatural sometimes when I edit it out. So the baby is currently crying. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I do <laughs> While not. You were I, I never hear it. Okay, good. All right. I'm just, just a quick, like, heads up, you know. Interesting. And if you don't want to hear babies crying and you want us to get some sort of professional <laughs> studio... <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> yes, patreon.com slash nnmat. But yeah, I'm I'm very ready for the end of the year, the end of the holidays. This is my favorite time of the year, the holiday stuff. You know, it's challenging with family stuff, but overall, like, just the vibe. I love mm-hmm. the flavors of this holiday season, like ginger and gingerbread and peppermint. Mint peppermint. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff. So that's totally my thing and I love things set in this magical snowy wintry thing. So I buy into all that crap big time, but I'm ready for 2023 just a reset. I'm not under this like false impression that we've all been trying to do every year like this year's going to be <laughs> this year's going to be different. This year's going to be totally normal again. But I'm I'm just ready for something to have a hard reset date. Yeah. Even if it's meaningless, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Do you have any recommendations or anything you've been up to this week you want to chat about? I have an anti-recommendation. Ooh, I l- Those are so fun, aren't they? <laughs> kind of, yes. So <laughs> I was scrolling through Netflix and came across this show that like the it was one of those moments where it's like you know you finished the show you're watching and you're kind of like what's next so sort of like surfing around and came across the show that was called ancient apocalypse and it's an on netflix i've seen the little thing okay and so the premise is basically like it's this you know guy who is who thinks he has found evidence of civilization prior to what most historians sort of like consider uh like earliest the beginning or early yeah the earliest civilizations or whatever and uh and the whole thing was like what happened to these people blah 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 and what kind of apocalypse happened that basically 
wiped them out kind of thing. Okay. As a concept, sounds very interesting. I would totally watch that based on that description. Totally. And uh, so I was like, oh, interesting. Like, I'm always, uh, I was in the mood to, like, see some kind of, like, interesting theories. But the minute it started, this guy was like, I'm, like, historians around the world hate me because I'm, like, a firebrand. And I, like, I go rogue. And uh, people people get mad at me because I challenge them and blah, blah, blah. Basically, like, scientists don't like me. And and I was kind of like... Huh, this is, like, getting kind of, like, weirdly, like, Trumpian, anti-intellectual, anti-science vibes I'm getting. And then I was like, I don't know about this. And then the next, within moments of me going, like, this really feels kind of Trumpy all of a sudden, the next thing that shows up was Joe Rogan speaking about how much he loves this guy. And I was like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. (laughs) I don't get... I don't get the Joe Rogan... There. Period. Enough said. I just think it's so funny. Like, whenever people are like, scientists hate me because I challenge what they think about the world. And it's like, no, you... No. Like, science... The whole purpose of science is to continually challenge our understanding of the world. And so if you were providing credible challenges to the way we understand the world, people wouldn't hate you. They hate you because you're giving them bullshit data and evidence. Right. And you're passing it off as fact. And and there are going to be people who are going to believe you. Exactly. Yeah, I am. Anyway, um, so that's my the, anti-recommendation. All those people out there who do that kind of thing, where they're yeah. like, oh, scientists hate me, or yeah. traditional education systems hate me, or whatever right. it might be, this, like, badassery. Everyone yeah. that does that thinks it has this, ooh, edgy, right. badass sound to it, and all it sounds like is, like, the kid you went to school with in class being standing up in front of everybody, the bully, and being yeah. like, everybody's jealous of me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so obnoxious. It's so childish. It's like a baby. Yes, very it's like that. watching a baby. <laughs> um, wow. I'm, I almost want to just watch an episode of it just to... <laughs> See what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> you should. I, I think I made it through maybe like 12 or 13 minutes of it. Oh my gosh. Wow. I, uh, what else? What else you got? Anything else? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I have caught myself back up on Insecure. Uh, oh, yeah. HBO, of course. It's been a while. I have, I think I stopped at season three or fit the end of season three and just never finished it. Yeah. So I'm like, I think one episode away from the last episode of the last season. So I'm sad. I'm saving it because I'm not ready to to end it yet. <laughs> Is are there four seasons? I think there are five. Oh wow. Okay. I might have only seen two, so I might have a lot to catch up on. Every time I think it's a lot to catch up on, that's what keeps me from getting back into it. And every but- time I start watching it, it's such a rapid watch. Yeah, and there's not a, it's not like a 20 episode season. It's so perfect. It's always like a perfect bite. You know, I'm hoping that this is one of those shows sort of similar to what you were talking about last week that just ends perfect, or the week before, I think, where we're just dead to me. Perfectly. Yeah. 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 Um, So, been watching that, and I'm looking for like my new gripping sort of dramedy watch. And mm. I started a show called Firefly Lane on Netflix. 
Okay. It's two seasons so far. It's with, um, oh, I hope I'm getting it right. I think her name is Sarah Chalk. She was okay. in Roseanne, and she was in, I think, Scrubs and some other stuff. Okay. And Katherine Heigl. Oh. And a few oh. other folks. And they're okay. like, I've only watched the first episode so far. And I, it seems to be about two longtime friends, mm-hmm. um, the two women I just mentioned. And they yeah. play the, the current adult versions of them, but we get a lot of, like, flashback moments to both them as young girls first meeting, like maybe 14, 15, uh-huh. and then like as young adults right after high school. And so you get like these three sort of timelines. Hmm. And so far, I really like it. I mean, it very much gripped me through the whole first episode. A lot of unexpected things happen. I haven't seen these two actresses in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I never was particularly fond of the first actress I said. I believe her name is Sarah Chalk, just because I hated Scrubs personally back mm-hmm. in the day. Yeah, same. I just it didn't appeal to me. I thought it, I hated it. And yeah, I agreed. I loved her on Roseanne because she played Becky. <laughs> I loved yeah. the idea of the two Beckys being so like self aware. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say, a Davy loves Scrubs, and I've watched episodes with him because he's had it on in the past and i actually think it's better than i thought it was uh one and two (laughs) a two (laughs) she's great she's excellent in this show i'm very impressed it's like a jessica beale moment for me (laughs) really yeah she's excellent and katherine heigl i i always liked and i've always kind of hated her backlash that she got so it's good to see her again so (laughs) that is my new i think dramedy watch However, you got me watching White Lotus, finally. I started it, finally. So good. (sighs) Now I don't know what to do. I don't know if I could do both at the same time. I love Firefly Lane. I might need to pause it because the first episode of White Lotus got me so (laughs) interested. I have to watch it now. (laughs) It's really good. You absolutely have to keep going. And Kelly from Insecure is in it. In the first season, at least. She's this masseuse. Oh, right. Okay, right, right, so right. I'm Belinda, like, I think her name is. Yes, White yes. Lotus. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for the recommendation. I started it. Um, I'm already very, very interested. Good. <laughs> That's all I got. Well, great. Are you ready for this? I am ready. <laughs> well, well, well. We are season five, episode seven. It's called Precious. Have you ever seen the movie Precious? I sure have. I liked it. Oh, I loved it. It was hard 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 to watch, but... Yeah, look at us. I mean, I was just going to say, wow, we think so alike, but I I don't think those are groundbreaking. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I think that The Wizard of Oz was very fantastical. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So this episode is nothing like that movie. No. (laughs) The episode begins in the park. It's a very similar scene, but one we haven't seen in a long time. They don't. Yeah. They haven't defaulted to the horse cops in a while. <laughs> no, so, it's the first time we've gotten horse cops. <laughs> Speaking of which, we've talked about the. I, I think I sent you the link, but you've heard the song called "Cops on Horses," right? The by the comedian that I sent you. Yes, <laughs> oh, I hadn't God. before you sent it to me though. <laughs> so funny. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. So we have the horse cops, and I'm not talking centaurs. <laughs> <laughs> uh they're like chit-chatting about like oh you know what actually i had to rewind but i was glad i did because their conversation 
and the reaction to it was very relatable. So I'll just lay it out for you. Mm -hmm. Two coworkers standing outside chit-chatting. And when I say chit-chatting, one is talking to at the other yeah. who is not interested in the conversation. Not at and all. And what is he doing? He's talking about his recent vacation and he's holding up like a set of glossy like old school one hour photo vacation photos. Yeah. Um, like a stack. And they're like literally brushing their horses on the job. And the woman <laughs> is like oh my god, I can't. you can tell she's so uninterested. And um, totally. <laughs> out of nowhere this guy comes out kind of out of nowhere and he's kind of in an upset state kind of kind of kind of and he says that his baby was kidnapped yeah i think and the woman is like thank god you got me out of this vacation photo (laughs) mess so they they run over almost faster than the guy whose kid was just kidnapped and we get a confusing cut scene because we're now with logan and briscoe on the scene so it's been a little bit They're talking to the man, the father. I think his name ends up being Marty, but I'll correct myself if I'm wrong. And he says that his daughter was three months old. She's been kidnapped. She was in a blue and white. He keeps calling it a backpack. I'm guessing like baby Bjorn because we don't put our kids in backpacks, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's one of those types of things, but nobody questions it. And he's, this is, okay. And I hope this doesn't sound harsh. I don't think any parent out there is going to think this sounds harsh. The reason his child was kidnapped was because he took a seat on a bench, took his child backpack off with his child in it, placed it next to him on the bench, and went to take a five-minute nap. What? Yeah. (laughs) In public, took the baby off of him, not even on him anymore, placed it down... A three-month-old to take a five-minute nap in on a park bench. What? It's certainly not a choice I would make. It's a, a, a risky move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're assuming great risk with something like that. Or let's say you're assuming a lot of trust in the public. Yeah. So he says, he says, oh, I just fell asleep for like five minutes. And he's very unfazed. And the detectives go, poor guy. (laughs) I was like, am I on earth? Um, (laughs) A lady pops up and says uh, to the detectives that she saw a bald, creepy guy taking pictures at the park hours ago. So they're like, all right, you know, go give a description to the sketch artist. She's like, sure. And then if you think we are exaggerating ever out there and you haven't seen Old Law and Order and you're wondering – how ridiculous the dialogue is and how offensive it is. This mm-hmm. is her next line of dialogue after she says that she saw, you know, this guy. She's going to go do the sketch artist. That could have been it. She could have walked away. But instead she says, un- unsolicited, quote, I thought this kind of thing only happens in my country. Guatemala, you don't know? And then they drag her away as she talks about harvesting organs. And I was like, why? Right. Why? Yeah. And uh, I think this kind of thing happens in this country a lot. <laughs> it was just like, why are we doing this? <laughs> this why is a whole show this? about these things happening in this country. <laughs> right. So the opening credits begin, and I had a minute. So I decided to get nostalgic, and I logged into my old Farmville account on MySpace, and I decided to check on my crops. <laughs> had a lot of pineapples that had just totally gone, totally mm. sour. My animals mm-hmm. were 
just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> Had to set my harvesting up, get some bananas going, tend to my pigs, and <laughs> now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm back. I never played Farmville. Oh, I somehow got sucked in. Like, I was an anti-Farmville hater making fun of people mm-hmm. when it was really popular for, like, the first month. Someone showed it to me, and I just, it was it was over. I became, like, I don't know, somebody's mom, like, obsessed with my crops. <laughs> so funny. Uh, we return back to the episode, and the father and mother of the missing girl, they're talking with Briscoe. And this is a three-month-old child that was kidnapped, and everything just feels so strangely non-urgent. Like, yeah, slightly emotional. Um, the father feels responsible, and they're, like, coddling him. No, you were tired. You had a long walk. Don't take that long of a walk. It was just a – he wasn't going anywhere. It was a walk. <laughs> right. Just for fun, and he got tired. Go home. Right. Uh, he's shown a picture of the sketch of this man, which we're never shown, by the way, so I don't know if it's good or not, but it was a bald guy with a camera. I can't imagine it looked like anything other than Mr. Magoo. So <laughs> that he doesn't recognize the guy. He says, I was only looking at Emily. But he was uh, asleep. I think you were looking... Right, exactly. Looking at the back of your eyelids. So uh, LVB says, let's see if anyone else had complaints about this mysterious guy in the park. So let's canvas the neighborhood. Let's just figure it out. I'm sure word's gotten out by now. So the detectives go talk to two random groups of moms in the park. You know, when you go to the the park and, like, random moms come up to you. Mm-hmm. So they go to the park and there's <laughs> random groups of moms to talk to. They're all in sitcom mom fashion. And yeah. one very Marissa Tomei kind of character comes out and says, there was this other guy at this other park. We complained about him called the police. It's very Bronx beat. And they're like, <laughs> okay, okay, let's go check out this police report. We cut out the middleman and we go directly to this guy's place. His name is Robert Cole. And he is indeed a bald man who had a camera. But the weird thing about him was that every time that he was like apprehended or given a ticket or something, he never had film in his camera. So, right. Suspicious. It's a kind of a weird, weird scene. His department stinks. Is he a, is he a pervert? Is he not? End of the day, he's he's not a pedophile. He's just kind of a creep who lies about taking pictures in the park to to hit on single moms. Right. Uh, and now Logan is like, oh, nice game. And they they move on with their lives, and I drink Purell. Yeah. <laughs> Forensics then calls them down because they got some information from the search team, recent information. They mm-hmm. found a backpack thingy, which is the baby Bjorn, and it's in the bushes, like kind of in clear sight at the scene of the crime. So it's investigated. There's only prints from the father. It's very suspicious. Why wouldn't anyone have seen this? It's brand new. Da 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 da. What are we doing? Briscoe puts the pieces together that we've all kind of been doing since we saw the father casually walk out and say his kid had been kidnapped. <laughs> um, and he says, maybe. This isn't what we think it is. Maybe the parents are involved. Yeah. So they head to the Willick residence. This is the family who is l- supposedly concerned about their child missing. And they talk to Marty. And he says that, um, you know, he didn't. S- they go to talk to Marty, but he's not there. Instead, they talk to his super at his apartment building. 
And mm-hmm. it's like a three-story apartment building or something. I think they're on the third floor. And the guy says, uh, you know, he's not home. I didn't see anything that day. But I will say that their stroller was here the whole day. Because since they're on a higher floor, he keeps his stroller on the, on the floor, on the bottom floor in the lobby next to, like, the heater next to the door. Yeah. Um, yeah. Find a apartment building anywhere where that is going to fly. Yeah. And where that stroller will be there the next morning. But yeah. he must be very, very lucky. Um, he does this because he has a bad back. And they're like, hmm, bad back. Guy walking 30 blocks with a baby in a backpack. Hmm. So we get a very super cornball, lame scene where it's supposed to look very intimidating. Logan whooshes in from off camera. <laughs> Profile to profile with the dad and interrogation. It's very like Mel Gibson in Ransom. Like, give me back my son. He goes, you did this. And he's like shoving the baby Bjorn in his face. The soft, mushy material. It's so dramatic. It's a lot. Yeah. He goes to cool off and he like bows as though he just put on an amazing presentation as bad cop. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah. That was like infomercial there's got to be a better way acting yeah so now briscoe is you know playing the good cop appealing to the father and oh maybe maybe you're sick of having a crying baby uh maybe you lost your temper maybe it's something else and then eventually like he you know appeals to his emotions somehow works his magic and he says that okay, there's a place by the Hudson where we watch the sunset over New Jersey. And with that incredibly vague sentence, they are able to locate the exact spot where, unfortunately, they find they dig and they find a cooler, which holds, unfortunately, the remains of their child who supposedly was missing. Yeah. So Briscoe and Logan look at the man in horror. They look at the coroner. It's this whole thing. Um, we we cut to a scene with the Emmy, and it's a new Emmy. It's not our rock star hairdo lady from before. Mm-mm. This one's a little bit like Felicity post-haircut vibes to me. <laughs> and um, she says that the cause of death, the cause of death was asphyxia, and it was either from smothering or naturally. Uh, yeah. There's no marks on the body. Hundred percent healthy, taken care of very well, wrapped in satin bedding. So they asked the dad, what happened for real this time? He says they woke up, and unfortunately, that they found their baby that way. And they were scared. Um, he covered the whole thing up to protect his wife, because what would people say? And Logan is speaking to the wife, who's like, okay, she, while being a pretty good actress, I would say, she kind of, rem- have you seen an American tale? Like with Fievel? I was getting, yes. She's like Fievel's sister. Fievel Mouskowitz's sister in human form. Her voice, her, her voice choice and acting throughout this whole episode is very uncomfortable to watch. It's so meek, but it's almost disturbing. Like, almost baby voice. Very creepy. baby voice. Mousy yeah. voiced, very meek in presentation. Um,. The kind of person who you'd be expecting to hold their purse with both hands just below their chin as they enter a room. (laughs) Um, Very that vibe. Yeah. Uh, So she says, like, very meekly that um, the worst things happened to her 
and the media would blame her. Her family blames her for everything already. And <laughs> Logan walks out of the room and goes, Ooh, this lady is on another planet. <laughs> yeah. For once, I kind of agree with Logan. Yeah. Um, he feels strongly that these two are culpable. But Briscoe and LVB are still on the fence. Maybe it was uh, quote-unquote crib death. Maybe it just happens to be a genetic thing. And she's just, it just happened. Mm-hmm. So they say, let's look into it. So they go to a local hospital where the victim was a regular, evidently. The doctor says that all she had suffered from before her death was an overactive parent with an imagination because they came in all the time and nothing really happened. There was yeah. never anything wrong. So she kind of slips her tongue saying that um, the family had other children and gives them the pediatrician or like their primary care, whatever, doctor, their name. So they go to talk to him and he says, yes, I did see this child before she passed. And yes, I, I was the pediatrician for their previous two children. And they're like, oh my God, what happened? It was the same thing. So they're like, okay, now we have, this is very suspicious. But the guy's like, mm-hmm. it could be genetic, especially with, you know, this happening three times. It really could be. Yeah. And he said he had recommended them to try adoption or, you know, fostering a child since this seemed to be something that was challenging for them. And they go to follow up with the adoption agency and find out that they did try this. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm unclear if it was adoption or foster care. It seems more like foster care. But they evidently cared for a young child named Gary for a period of time Mm -hmm. in between their second and third child. And Gary ended up having to be <clears throat> Gary ended up having to be removed from the house because he was brought to the hospital so many times with seemingly fictional illnesses and ailments. Yeah. And this was the case until one day he was brought in with respiratory like problems and it looked like he had suspicions about having been suffocated. Yeah. And then the, the person at the agency who was like, ooh, kind of dicey about saying it's like, I have to go. It just disappears off camera. <laughs> yeah. They go back and talk to the the mousy-voiced mom. Her name is Eileen, by the way. And she doesn't understand what's going on. What's the big hubbub? <laughs> so they apply some more pressure and ask about the previous children and about Gary. She gets a little sad and says she's a bad mom because her babies cry all the time, and that's not how it's supposed to be. So Briscoe asks what she did when they cried, and she has a long, disturbing pause as she drinks her water and says, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And then they're like, okay. In the other room, Marty, the the father, is sort of a wreck, head and hands, uh, ugly, ugly, ugly sweater. Mm -hmm. He's pushed and pushed until he says, okay, it's possible my wife was involved. So they're like, okay, we got a possible they're back with Eileen. She's getting, like, free therapy sessions with Briscoe. Uh, he's, mm. like, making some weird choices where he involves, like, maybe blaming. He thinks she's religious and says, like, oh, it's so sad. God's going to be blamed for this instead of you. It's yeah. really weird. Very. And, uh, what it, it's, it's, it's just weird. We yeah. get our, like, little scene where the law folks meet with Kincaid or McCoy. In this case, it's Kincaid. And they, you know, say, here's what we got. And then the DA says, it's a weak case. 
and they say, come on, and they go, okay, we'll try. <laughs> so we do that. Yeah. Eileen and Martin are arrested for murder and for hindering prosecution, respectively. They um, are with the DA's team. Then we are with the DA's team trio, and mm-hmm. both of them are, like, let out on bail with, like, held on your own. <laughs> Whatever. They're both out in the world. The DA's trio are discussing all the information that they have, and all they really have on their side for this case currently is the history with the previous children, which may or may not be allowed, and the tabloids are, like, latching on the story. So that's kind of not a lot. Um, Right. Schiff thinks that they need an expert on crib death, at least in their corner, so they go talk to one who says that the difference between a death like that and smothering, uh, there are a few signs you can look for and that it's very unlikely this would be something genetic. So they are going to use her. She recommends they talk to a psychologist who mentions the Lisa Rinna buzzword Munchausen's, Mm -hmm. which I was like, oh, (laughs) this is coming up. And it fits all the signs. Um, And he says she was a sympathy junkie. So... I imagine at the time this came out, Munchausen was a, a very hot topic. Um, mm. Something must have happened in the press recently at that time, because I don't think that was really part of anyone's lexicon until we started seeing things on the news about it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, the uh, DA's team duo of McCoy and Kincaid confront Marty and his lawyer, and they have the findings that, you know, this crib death was very unlikely, and they are hoping he'll fess up and throw his wife under the bus. He says he doesn't believe them, but they could tell maybe he has more to say. I also, the whole time I was watching this episode, was like, wow, this has a lot of strange elements in common with the case I covered last week, strangely. Totally. Um, right? I mean, it's it's way, it's different enough that I don't think it's based on it, but I was like, wow, that's so weird. I did not look ahead. <laughs> um, anyway, so Munchausen's is brought up. That's kind of the route that it seems like they're going to be going. So McCoy, through some weird reasoning, thinks that the best thing to do now is to start questioning people that are close to them that they maybe haven't talked to. And this brings up, I think, Marty's sister or Mm sister-in-law. And they go talk to her in her wood-paneled home, and it just brought me back to my grandparents' house as a kid. And um, (laughs) she... She basically says that everyone has always suspected Eileen was a dangerous person since the second child passed away. And this whole thing always seemed like an act, this whole, like, boo-hoo thing. And she said that Marty, I guess it's her, her brother, was always suspicious of of maybe something being amiss in the home with the children mm-hmm. and his wife. So he opted to get a vasectomy. And when he told his wife that he wanted to do this... She threatened to divorce him, and so the vasectomy talk was kind of, like, off the table. Right. So, okay, now we've got more information. They go back to Marty, and they interrogate him at his place of work, and they accuse him of hating his children, and they re-traumatize him with photos of them. And it's kind of, in my opinion, terrible. Um, Yeah. He gets weepy. He eventually collects himself and says, I'm going to be there for my wife no matter what. Leave me alone. 
McCoy and Kincaid feel like they know what happened now, but they still have to prove it was something they can take to court. They can't say they got a feeling when they went to the guy's job from him. So they do the common law and order tactic that they always feel like is groundbreaking, where they're <laughs> going to charge both of them. Right. And, th- you know, they're both technically responsible in different ways if things happen the way they suppose they did. So they decide they're going to do that. Schiff thinks it's a bad idea because there's no way the prior acts are going to be allowed in court. And um, he says, if you want to go to court, go ahead. If you think you have a serial killer, go to trial. But don't expect it to be a summer rain. And it, like, fades out. And I was like, was that supposed to be, like, a big moment? Right. Don't expect it to be a summer rain. I was like, retire, Schiff. It is time. (laughs) (laughs) So we go to the trial, and, you know, we have the expert talking about the difference between crib death and what Emily suffered. Uh, The defense simply has the expert say, well, it's possible it was genetic, and that's kind of all they have. Seems kind of flimsy. Then we have Marty on the stand. He's testifying that he thought everything was fine. They didn't realize what had happened to Emily until the morning the night before she was sleeping and it seemed fine and he says the whole idea to cover everything up and come up with the kidnapping story was to spare his wife's feelings a uh, very strange thing to think of doing to spare your wife's feelings yeah um but that's his story and he's sticking to it yeah. and then mccoy uses the like cold and callous way that they found the body to show the maliciousness of the act with him on the stand and he Proves that while the man claims to be a light sleeper, this whole thing happened not three feet away from him, and he slept through it, despite having awoken multiple times throughout the night by his own account. Then we have the mom on the stand, and she's saying the same thing. She was so upset. They woke up in the morning, and this is what happened. She's really dialing it up, and she says, I didn't have a lot of experience as a mom, which was a really weird thing for her to say. Yeah. Um, because she said this, it, of course, the jury is very emotional about it. It sounds terrible what's happened to her. And because she said this, um, McCoy, like, walks through the door she opened and says, was this your first child? Uh, and there's an objection, but it's overruled. But be careful, like that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all we get to find out is that she had had pre- two previous children and mm-hmm. he gets her to insinuate that they're either no longer with us or at the very least no longer living with her. Either right. way, it's going to look bad for her because for, she just said, I don't have a lot of experience as a, as a mother. You know, it's the typical thing, though. Like, I guess that could happen. You know, I guess mm-hmm. a lot of we always hear about stupid, stupid mistakes, you know, that criminals yeah. make and we're always like delighted by them. Um, it seems like a strange thing that she would have said. Anyway. McCoy, uh, you know, this whole thing happens. They have their closing arguments. They're very emotionally charged. Now we wait to hear what happened. And I think what ends up happening is there's a hung jury. Like nine people were for conviction, but the others couldn't decide. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, we'll see what we're going to do. McCoy is like, I'll agree to a plea, which is Schiff's idea always. Um, Yeah. But McCoy says, only if she agrees... To be sterilized. Mm-hmm. They have this really annoying discussion uh, where McCoy thinks that the state should have like full govern governing options over 
a woman's body. And Kincaid thinks this is ridiculous. Uh, Schiff says, I don't care what you, what you think. Good luck getting anyone to agree to this outrageous stipulation. Kind mm-hmm. of a waste of everyone's time and money. Uh, it's th- He's like, I'm going to argue it. So they go to the judge's chambers. Uh, he argues it. Obviously, everyone in the room thinks McCoy is a barbarian and out of control. Yeah. And they remove him from the case immediately. Thank the Lord. The next scene is Kincaid placating him. It's very obnoxious. I'm going to go mm-hmm. right past that. Um, <laughs> and we find out in some strange twist, again, very much like my case, that they find out that Eileen is currently pregnant, which nobody yeah. knew. So McCoy asks Marty if he's prepared to go through all of this again, now knowing his wife is pregnant again. And he's emotional, and there's an emotional standoff. And then there's like kind of like a real... I wish I could just cut this scene from the rest of the episode and watch this show or this movie because it really was very well acted and emotional, this part. Like, I actually God, it choked me up a little bit. Um, Marty turns to his wife, and it's very well – it's just so well done for, like, Law & Order. He's, like, emotional, and he looks at her in a not corny way, and you could tell, like, he's – they're looking at each other with this understanding of what is going on, but this, like – they can't quite put it into words and he says i want my wife to get help and it's this very intense moment where he kind of explains in the least terms as he can what actually happened and everyone is very moved by it even the mom seems to finally understand that she needs more help than she can she can get yeah and McCoy agrees to a plea bargain without his ridiculous stipulation before. Um, and it's for man one with a sentence recommendation. They don't say what it is, but it's insinuated as to a facility. They don't say for how long, but um, rather than a prison. And the episode ends with them, you know, mulling over that decision. Well, great job. Ooh, it was a, it was a, a rough one uh to watch yeah and yeah i <laughs> am curious what it's about i don't know if it's about the the case that they literally mentioned, mentioned. four times yeah or if it's about something similar but i'm i'm curious well this episode was based on a couple of different cases okay. and um <laughs> You know, I uh, we've talked about this before. Sometimes you have the emotional capacity to like research something that's pretty horrifying, and sometimes you just don't. Yes. Um, and so, of my choices, I picked the one that was like least. I don't. I mean, I'm saying that, and the story I'm about to tell you is horrifying. So know that this is the least horrifying of the th- the like three options. options that I had. Yeah. So, this is the story of Mary Beth Tinning, uh, who was not a name that I recognized when I started researching. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I didn't recognize any of the cases that were options. Like, oh, they okay. were all new to me. Yeah, so there are a few, like I said, a few different ones that this was uh, based off of, but uh, I chose the story of Mary Beth Tinning. So, uh, Mary Beth was born Mary Beth Rowe in, on September 11th of 1942 in Dwaynesburg, New York. 
to her parents, Ruth and Louis Rowe. Not a lot is known about her childhood. Uh, Most of the story that I'm going to share is kind of just about her adulthood. So her childhood, I'll just kind of say a a couple of things, Mm -hmm. uh, which are that as a young child, her father was uh, served in World War II, and her mother was working to provide for her and Mary Beth. And so the articles that I read kind of mentioned that she spent a lot of time being cared for by other family members Mm -hmm. uh, and... One of the articles mentioned that a specific family member had once told her that she was like an accident child, that she was Mm -hmm. unwanted, and that's like why she was being cared for by other family members. Who knows if that's true or not? Uh, There's no direct uh, statement about that from Mary Beth, so who knows? once her father had finished serving in World War II, he returned to Dwaynesburg and worked for General Electric. And her relationship with her father seemed fine, although in later on in the story, she'll she'll tell a story about her father having like locked her in her bedroom once and like hitting her with a fly swatter. There are, and I don't know. That's one of those little like sound bites right. that you start to see like picked up in every single article that you read as like her being hit with a fly swatter by her dad. Right, right, right. Eventually, Mary Beth graduated from Dwaynesburg High School in 1961 and worked as a nursing assistant and I believe like a part-time bus driver um, in Schenectady, uh, which is just like 10 miles north of Dwaynesburg. Mm-hmm. In 1963, Mary Beth met a man named Joseph Tinning on a blind date, and the two began dating, and two years later were married in 1965. Mm -hmm. And two years after that, had uh, their first child, Barbara, in 1967. Uh, Their second child, Joseph Jr., was born in January of 1970. And um, about nine years into their marriage in 1974, uh, Mary Beth's husband, Joseph, was admitted to the hospital with a near-fatal case of barbiturate poisoning. Um, mm. Later, he and Mary Beth would acknowledge that their marriage hadn't been going particularly well at the time, and they had gotten into an argument over uh, money, and Mary Beth had taken some epilepsy pills from a friend's daughter and put them into Joseph's drink to poison him. Whoa, uh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> When did she admit that? Uh, this this would end up being like years later. Okay. So kind but of at the act time, after. What was the what was the belief of how this had happened? Like when he found out that the reason he was in the hospital for barbiturate poisoning. Like did he think? So he knew. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. but but they would. But he declined to press charges, they and like they would short. Their own yeah, way. they were kind of handling it their own way. Exactly. Got it. Oh my god! Can you imagine? If if Miles tried to poison me, <laughs> I would not stick around. <laughs> oh my god! What if Miles tried to? Poison uh, but you know, to each their own. Um, wow. Okay. So, on December twenty sixth of nineteen seventy one, their third child, Jennifer, was born at Saint Clair's Hospital. Um, unfortunately, Jennifer suffered uh, a condition called hemorrhagic meningitis, which is an infection of the fluid surrounding the brain and the spinal cord, mm-hmm. um, and caused her to have like multiple brain abscesses that had developed in utero. And so Jennifer uh, lived for only a week and never left the hospital and passed away 
um, just uh, like five to six days later on January 3rd, 1972. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Two weeks after Jennifer's death, Mary Beth arrived to the Ellis Hospital emergency room with two-year-old Joseph Jr., telling the hospital staff that he had experienced a seizure and was cho- had choked on his own vomit. Um, doctors examined Joseph Jr., but found nothing wrong with him. But they admitted him, they observed him for several days, and eventually he was released on January 20th. Hmm. Only a few hours after he had been released from the hospital, Mary Beth again brought Joseph Jr. back to the emergency room, and Joseph Jr. was pronounced dead <gasps> on arrival. His death was attributed to cardiopulmonary arrest, and the family was given their condolences, and, you know, they they returned home. Wow. On March 1st, so about five weeks later, Mary Beth again arrived to the emergency room, this time with four-and-a-half-year-old Barbara, their eldest daughter, saying that her daughter had gone into convulsions. Uh, Barbara died the next day after being in a comatose state for several hours. Her death was attributed to something called Ray syndrome, R-E-Y-E, which is a brain disease that uh, involves vomiting, seizures, uh, often liver toxicity, and it actually has a pretty high mortality rate of 20 to 40 percent. More than a third of survivors of Ray syndrome are left with significant brain damage. Wow. So that was March 1st. So uh, at this yes. point, she has no surviving children. Um, at this point, she has, uh, let's see. So uh, she had yes, three Jennifer, children and Jennifer died passed. a week after birth. Uh, Joseph Jr. died in uh, January. And then Barbara, their eldest, died in March. And how old were Joseph Jr. and Barbara? Um, Joseph was two and a half, and Barbara, I think, was three, let's see, four and a half, sorry. Yeah. Okay. On November 22nd of 1973, so uh, about, you know, seven months later, after uh, Barbara had passed away, Mary Beth gave birth to their fourth child, Timothy. Uh, About two and a half weeks later, she arrived at the ER with newborn Timothy, telling medical staff that she had found him lifeless in his crib. And he was also pronounced dead, and his death was attributed to SIDS, uh, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Oh my gosh, that was, um, do you remember when we were growing up how, maybe it's just me, that was on the news all the time, SIDS. Yes. Like it was like a really... I don't want to say epidemic, but it was happening a lot. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I definitely remember it, but I don't remember it being like an epidemic. Okay. But maybe it was just like a a new classification. And so it was something that medicine was able to talk about in a a specific way suddenly. Yeah, like new language for what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess they were using the term crypt death in this and... Perhaps yeah. this is more, uh, you know, specific. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so um, November 22nd, she gives birth to Timothy. Uh, two weeks later, arrives to the ER, lifeless. His death is attributed to SIDS. A year and a half later, in March of 1975, Mary Beth gives birth to the Tinning's fifth child, Nathan. 
And in fall of that year, she arrives to the emergency room reporting that she had been out driving with her son, Nathan, when he had just stopped breathing. Um, And he was also pronounced dead. And he was under a year Uh, as well. Yes, correct. Five years later, in August of 1978, uh, the Tinnings adopted a newborn child named Michael. And and two months later, Mary Beth also gave birth to her sixth uh, you know, uh, biological child, uh, Mary Frances. And Mary Frances was born on October 29th, 1978. So at this point, they have their adopted son, Michael, and uh, daughter, Mary Frances. Mm-hmm. About three months later, in January of 1979, Mary Beth arrived at the emergency room saying that Mary Frances, her two-month-old, oh yeah, two-month-old child, um, was having a seizure. The hospital staff was able to revive Mary Frances uh, and attributed the incident to a case of SIDS that they had been able to prevent. Unbelievable. A month later, Mary Beth arrived at the emergency room with Mary Frances in full cardiac arrest. Uh, This time, she was revived but suffered significant brain damage and passed away two days later uh, after she was removed from life support. So... In fall of 1979, the Tinnings' uh, child, Jonathan, was born. Uh, he passed away in March of 1980. And we'll I'll kind of recap a little bit of the explanations for all of the children's deaths in, in a minute, because it's a little hard to keep track of, like, the birth and uh, yeah, yeah. death of, of all of these children. So about a year later, in February of 1981, Michael, the Tinnings' adopted son, fell down the stairs and suffered a concussion. And on March 2nd, they took him to the uh, emergency room because they couldn't get him to wake up. And again, he was pronounced dead on arrival. The Tinning's ninth child, Tammy Lynn, was born August 22nd of 1985. On December 19th of 1985, at 1.15 a.m., Mary Beth made a phone call to her neighbor, Cynthia Walter, who was a licensed nurse, and uh, Cynthia said that Mary Beth said, Cynthia, get over here. And Cynthia went quickly to the Tinnings home to find their infant daughter, Tammy Lynn. And she described her as purple, without a pulse, and unresponsive. Cynthia Walter said that Mary Beth told her she had already called for an ambulance and had attempted to resuscitate Tammy Lynn, but was unsuccessful. Two minutes later, an ambulance arrived and transported Mary Beth, her husband Joseph, and Tammy Lynn to the hospital, but efforts to revive Tammy Lynn were unsuccessful, and her death was again attributed to SIDS. And this made Tammy Lynn the ninth child of the Tinnings to die before the age of five in a 14-year span, leaving them with no surviving children. What about their adopted child? He's the one who fell down the stairs and uh, uh, passed away maybe like two days later. Got it. So the deaths of all nine Tinnings children had been kind of like variously reported, some due to natural causes, uh, one undetermined, or sudden infant death syndrome. So let me just do a, a quick recap. So Jennifer Jennifer passed away on January 3rd, 1972, at seven days old due to respiratory failure. Three weeks later, Joseph uh, died January 20th, 1972, of cardiopulmonary arrest. Two months later, Barbara uh, passed away of brain edema at four and a half years old. 
then the next year, in December 10th, 1973, uh, Timothy died at 14 years old of SIDS. Uh, 14 months old. The 14 months old. Or, sorry, 14 days old. Oh, days. Okay. Thank you for catching that. Yeah. Uh, Nathan uh, passed away on September 2nd, 1975, at five months old of acute pulmonary edema. Mary Frances uh, passed away February 22nd, 1979, at three and a half months old of SIDS. Jonathan passed away March 20th of 1980, at three months old of cardiopulmonary arrest. Michael, uh, this is the adopted child, uh, March, 20, March 2nd, 1981, at two and a half years old, his cause of death was listed as undetermined. And then Tammy Lynn, December 20th, 1985, at four months old, uh, again, attributed to SIDS. So prior to Tammy Lynn's death, uh, the ninth child, there had been some suspicion about the series of deaths and misfortune that the Tinnings had experienced. I mean, Um, come on. To me, it only seems like one of these deaths could be not their fault. Well, so we'll get to that. Okay. So um, there had been investigations into three of the deaths, um, but it was apparently, according to Schenectady Police Chief Richard Nelson, they had, like, gone the full route uh, with these investigations, but had kind of, like, run into dead ends because, according to him, quote, when you've got a lack of a cause of death, what can you do? So basically it was hard for them to gather any evidence that indicated foul play in any Mm. of this. But after Tim- Tammy Lynn's death, the police and uh, child services uh, received phone calls asking, like, telling them, like, you've got to do something. There is something wrong with the Tinning family. Uh, and uh, Police Chief Nelson stated that several sources had contacted his department, as well as the county district attorney, John Porsche, P-O-E-R-S-C-H. And... Initially, uh, the chief medical examiner believed Tammy Lynn's death was due to SIDS, um, but because of the Tinnings history where multiple, so many children had died, they ordered more uh, laboratory studies, and it was determined that Tammy Lynn had been suffocated. So when they discovered this, um, they exhumed two of the Tinning children, and most of the articles don't indicate which children. Mm-hmm. But they kind of say uh, the police chief gives like the age range um, of the children or like how many years ago their deaths were. And it, and it looks like uh, Nathan, the one who had been like in the car with her supposedly uh-huh. when he had died. And I believe Jonathan were the two children that they attempted to perform additional autopsies of. Okay. Unfortunately, due to the fact that they had been deceased for years, uh, advanced decomposition had set in and they were unable to find any signs of abuse in those two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the they were performing an investigation into the Tinning family and the death of Tammy Lynn and medical examiner Dr. Thomas Oram uh, the chief of pathology said, kind of provided a write-up on the Tinning family and described Mary Beth saying, quote, she seems to want to have a living child. She has never been seen to openly abuse her children. She has always been alone with the child when the child either died or was in extremis, which I think is uh, like a medical emergency status, mm-hmm. and said there is some evidence of delay in getting help. 
The father seems to have shown little curiosity in the circumstances of all of these children's deaths. Right. He has difficulty in remembering all of their names, which, yeah, anyway, they, over the span of 14 years, had nine children who died, and most of them died really young. When it was determined that Tammy Lynn's uh, cause of death was suffocating... Mary Beth and her husband, Joseph, were taken to the Schenectady Police Department and questioned about the death of Tammy Lynn. And during the investigation, Mary Beth confessed to having killed Tammy Lynn because she couldn't get Tammy Lynn to stop crying. She said, quote, I finally used the pillow from my bed and put it over her head. I held it until she stopped crying. I didn't mean to hurt her. I just wanted her to stop crying. Joe was still sound asleep, and I and didn't know I came in and got the pillow. When I finally lifted the pillow off Tammy, she wasn't moving. I put the pillow on the couch and made it look like I had been sleeping on the couch, and then I screamed for Joe, and he woke up, and I told Joe Tammy wasn't breathing. So Mary Beth signed a document confessing to the murder of Tammy Lynn, as well as to the murder of Timothy and Nathan. In her confession, she stated, quote, I did not do anything to Jennifer, Joseph, Barbara, Michael, Mary Francis, Jonathan. Just these three, Timothy, Nathan, and Tammy. I smothered them each with a pillow because I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good mother because of the other children. So she was arrested and charged with Tammy Lynn's murder, and Mary Beth would later claim that she had made this confession under duress, that she had been threatened by police and had been denied her requests for a lawyer. Um, She made bail and was released from custody pending her trial date. Uh, Joseph Tinning, in speaking with reporters, said that he had suspected Mary Beth in the deaths of their children, but said, quote, but you have to trust your wife. She has her things to do, and as long as she gets them done, you don't ask questions. What? Yeah. So Mary Beth's murder trial, or rather Mary Beth's trial for the murder of Tammy Lynn, began in Schenectady County Court on June 22nd of 1987. Witnesses for the prosecution included Mary Beth's own brother and sister-in-law, who stated that the times that they had seen Tammy Lynn, she was crying 99% of the time. And uh, the sister-in-law said that it was because her bottles of formula were never refrigerated, and a lot of time there was sour milk in the baby's bottles. And she, this is uh, her sister-in-law, Sandra Rowe, who stated that in the days following Tammy Lynn's death, Mary Beth, quote, never talked about the death. It never seemed to bother her. Now, I do think it's worth mentioning, a a lot of the articles that you'll read about this are, um, like, Mary Beth uh, didn't appear, you know, upset, da-da-da-da-da. And as we know, people respond to death and grief very differently. Mm -hmm. And so that's not always an indication of, uh, you know, like guilt or culpability in in whatever has occurred. But both her and the neighbor Cynthia Walter talk in many of the articles about how they're like, she seemed okay after Tammy Lynn's death. Yeah. Her brother Alton testified that Mary Beth uh, could become violent if she reached a breaking point, and that Mary Beth was someone who was easy to upset and at times could be paranoid. 
The family pediatrician, Dr. Bradley Ford, testified that Mary Beth had ignored his recommendation that the family install a specialized alarm device to monitor Tammy Lynn's breathing, uh, given the family's history with what he had thought at the time was a series of medical issues. So when Tammy Lynn had been born, he had said, like, install this alarm to make sure that she's breathing so you can get help, given that your previous children have died of SIDS. You know, but she ignored that advice. Um, Dr. Marie Valdez de Pena, who was a representative of the SIDS Foundation, as well as the medical do- examiner Thomas Oram, testified that Tammy Lynn did not die as a result of SIDS and had been, in fact, smothered with a soft object indicating, you know, the pillow that she uh, confessed to having used to murder her. Mary Beth's husband did testify that following the police interrogation, Mary Beth had told him that she had killed Tammy. And his kind of, it's interesting, his voice is like lost in in this story. Uh, you really only kind of get like that quote and then the quote about that I mentioned earlier about like you have to trust your wife. Yeah. There's not a lot of direct statements from him. So there are moments where he talks about how he believes his wife is innocent and then other moments where he talks about how she said that she did it and he testifies that she said she did it. Um, and so my interpretation is that he believed that she was responsible for this, but that technically, like, some of the charges against his wife, she was, like, technically innocent of, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it's a little strange, but yeah. you don't get a lot from him. So, Mary Beth's defense tried to present some reasonable doubt into this murder trial, Um, by presenting some medical experts who said that it is possible that all of the Tinning children had died as a result of a rare genetic brain disorder. Um, So the primary uh, physician or or medical expert was Dr. Jack Davies, a forensic pathologist with the Albany Medical College and chief neurologist at the Veterans Administration Medical Center Hospital. Um, And he testified that he had found evidence of uh, Wordig, Wordnig Hoffman disease um, in the cellular remains of Jonathan, which was one of the uh, deceased brothers of Tammy Lynn. So that's why I think he was one of the ones um, exhumed. Mm-hmm. This is a disease that's kind of a childhood counterpart to what we commonly know as Lou Gehrig's disease. And this causes stoppage of the breath in small children. A uh, few of the children who have Wardnig Hoffman disease live beyond the age of three. And so the fact that he found evidence of this in Jonathan's cellular remains, he says, like, is enough reasonable doubt to uh, acquit Mary Beth of Tammy Lynn's murder. However, they were unable to, ter- to determine whether this disease had impacted Tammy Lynn. Um, and the... This this doctor also noted that Joseph Tinning Sr. Uh, had testified that Tammy Lynn was a slow feeder, sometimes had cold, clammy skin, was often irritable, and all of these were characteristics of a baby afflicted by Wardening-Hoffman disease. Hmm. However, there are a lot of articles that talk about the prosecution's sort of uh, opinion of this medical expert, Dr. Davies, 
And they, just to summarize them, the prosecution kind of tries to paint him as being basically like a a for-hire medical expert. That like you can kind of like hire him to say what you want to say on the stand with regard to medicine. And that the jury appears not to have found this theory of the uh, Tinnings family being impacted by Wardenig Hoffman disease as credible. Um, because after a six-week trial, the jury deliberated and returned with a verdict of guilty of second-degree murder um, as a result of depraved indifference to human life. So Mary Beth Tinning was sentenced to 20 years to life, which was just five years short of the maximum penalty for the crime. After the guilty verdict, uh, Tinning stated, I will never stop fighting to prove my innocence. One day the whole world will know that I am innocent. She appealed the verdict on the grounds that, uh, claiming that her confessions had been coerced, but ultimately uh, her appeal was denied by the New York Supreme Court's appellate division. In 1989, uh, which was, uh, you know, shortly after this first trial, she was charged with the murder of Timothy and Nathan, arising out of her statement that she had made during the murder of, uh, during her confession of the murder of Tammy Lynn. Uh, But ultimately, these charges were dismissed because of a lack of corroborating evidence. They just didn't think they had enough to prove her guilt in that case, or those cases. So, um... Tinning uh, began her her sentence and became eligible for parole first in March of 2007, and at her appeal hearing stated, I have to be honest, and the only thing I can tell you is that I know that my daughter is dead. I live with it every day. I have no recollection, and I can't believe that I harmed her. I can't say any more than that. Her parole was denied. Her second parole hearing was a little over two years later in 2009, where she stated, quote, I was going through bad times uh, when she killed her daughter. The parole board thought her remorse was, quote, superficial at best, and again denied her parole. Her third hearing was in January of 2011, where she said that after the deaths of my other children, I just lost it. I became a damaged, worthless piece of a person, and when my daughter was young, in my state of mind at that time, I just believed she was going to die also, so I just did it. She was again denied parole due to her lack of remorse. In 2013, she went back before the parole board and stated, It's just, I can't, I can't remember. I mean, I know I did it, but I can't tell you why. There is no reason. She was denied parole in 2013, 2015, and again in 2017. And in 2018, at her seventh parole hearing, she was paroled after serving 31 years for the murder of Tammy Lynn. Her husband, Joseph, who had supported her throughout the trial and imprisonment, was present for her release. And by all accounts, are still together. Uh, She remains on parole for the remainder of her life. Uh, She has a curfew and has to attend domestic violence counseling. And that's kind of like the the end of her story. Like, it just sort of, like, fades into the ethers at that point. Uh Um, Other than, like, her story has kind of been talked about in a few different uh, pieces of media, um, including, I believe, an HBO series where a medical examiner, Dr. Michael Baden, after reviewing the files of all the children's autopsy reports, 
says that he believes this was a case of Munchausen by proxy, uh, which is also called factitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA. And something I didn't know is that Munchausen by proxy, or FDIA, is one of the most lethal forms of abuse, um, with a mortality rate between 6 and 10%, uh, with the average age of the abused person being four years of age. Yeesh. William Barnes, the police officer who took Mary Beth's initial statement and said that he had known Mary Beth since she was 10 years old, said that his belief was that after um, their child Jennifer died in the hospital a week after her birth, the one who had uh, experienced uh, brain edema, mm-hmm. his belief is that she had gotten a lot of attention uh, because of that child's death and that yes. this caused her to abuse slash murder her future children for uh, attention as a result of Munchausen by proxy. That is 100% my theory. And that is the awful story uh, of Mary Beth Tinning. Wow. Yeah. That's traumatizing. Yes. Wow. I have never heard of her by name, at least. I wonder if I look up anything about her, if if I'll remember the case. And that, like I said really traumatic tragic story and of the ones that inspired the episode the one that i thought was the least terrifying tragic traumatic to research and report on yeah i when i when i cover these types of stories that involve young young children yeah especially when it involves their parents as well I understand those YouTube, you know, content creators who cover true crime who won't touch this kind of topic. For sure, yeah. Totally get it. I wonder how I would feel if I was a parent myself. I wonder if that would make it even harder. Um, yeah. I just want to say a couple things about this topic before we do our ratings and everything. I feel like, I think October, it was either October or November, was... Um, Infant Loss Awareness Month, I believe, or Mm -hmm. Infant Loss and Pregnancy Awareness Month. Yeah. And it's something that when I was young, I have folks in my family who've experienced miscarriage and and forms of that. And I always was very, like, you know, sad about it, empathetic about it, as, as much as I could be as a person growing up. But being older being touched by more people in my life and seeing it happen to people that I'm very close with. I, I'm touched by this in a a more mm, significant way. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say out there for anyone who has experienced loss of an infant, of a child in any way, shape or form, um, experiences, challenges with conception, anything related to this topic. There are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of small resources to big ones, depending on what you need. Um, But there's a lot of support out there for for you. And I just want to give just a few resources that I know have been helpful to those in my life who have been personally impacted with this. Great. Um, Most of them are Instagram pages, because I feel like they're just the most accessible, but they all have their own websites and, and information. Mm-hmm. One that comes up a lot, it used to be called Every Mama's Heart. Uh, she recently rebranded her page, and it's called Each and Every Heart. So if you look mm-hmm. for that on Instagram, it's just spelled out, Each and Every Heart. And she 
does a lot for the community, for parents experiencing these traumatic and life-changing events. And she works to normalize grief and miscarriage and honor her babies and everybody else's. She she makes things for folks out there. She does a lot of fundraising. She currently has a fundraiser for a gentle embrace. Um, and so there's a lot of great things on her page from just content that's comforting from a mm-hmm. community of people who can talk to you to like actual resources that you can reach out to and, and, and find help. There's also a Instagram page called Hope Again Collective. They go ahead and they make earrings um, for folks who are experiencing mis- miscarriage and uh, stillbirth, and all of the proceeds go towards grief resources. Mm, and they nice. have a website at hopeagaincollective.com. There's also the Cooper Project 141. A friend of mine gets involved with them annually. They do a lot of fundraisers. They do a really simple um, way you can get involved and help is with strings. They do these bracelets, and I think they they do them a couple times a year, these fundraisers, where you can just volunteer to buy yarn, make these Mm -hmm. very simple bracelets and send them in, and, and proceeds from them go towards supporting families who've experienced infant loss and, and uh, challenges with pregnancy. And lastly, Molly Bears Org. It's the name of the Instagram. You can go to mollybears.org. Uh, they make uh, stuffed weighted teddy bears for mm. folks who are experiencing loss and going mm. through that. So these are just four of many, many resources out there that I think are helpful, have been helpful to those people in my life that I love very much. And just for folks to just take a minute, I mean, this is so hard. These two weeks, we just covered two really challenging topics that dealt with child death and infant loss. And it's hard to see these topics and talk about them, but I want to just share something that a friend of mine shared with me who has experienced this topic Mm -hmm. that I didn't have a lot of understanding of, and I think it could be helpful for those out there. So when someone experiences infant loss... It could be very isolating, Mm -hmm. and it's understandable to not know how to approach somebody and talk to them about this. Um, You don't want to re-traumatize somebody. You don't want to do anything that's going to be hard to talk about. Uh, But just check in on your friends, on your loved ones Mm -hmm. who experienced this. Uh, It's hard. It could be hard for them to reach out, but they don't want to feel alone. You know, when you're experiencing pregnancy... People are all over you, and Mm -hmm. then it's incredibly isolating to have the stark opposite happen. And everyone experiences this in a different way. Everyone experiences parenthood in a different way, and not in a political sense, in just a personal sense. So just check in on people, ask people if they need support, and if they're comfortable and they like to talk about their children— let them do that. Talk to them. Yeah. Talk with them. Have conversations. Just don't, don't, leave, don't leave your friends out there hanging just because it's hard. Even just yeah. letting them know that you are there to talk about whatever they want to whenever they want to could mean like a world of difference. So mm-hmm. just wanted to put that out there uh, to try to – we're talking about hard things, and I don't want to end it on a note where – of hopelessness in any, any yeah. way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. That's all. Well, you want to rate this this bad boy? Um, um, okay. 
Watchability. Watchability. I didn't think it was terrible as far yeah. as like overall. However, the topic it dealt with, it it's so hard and challenging, like I just talked about. And yeah. oftentimes it's just, you know, oh yeah, this this happened, that happened, you know, it's sad, whatever, and we move on. Uh it you know, it's it's a very insensitive way to cover this type of topic, I think. So I'll give it a, a C. I'll give it a C minus. Yeah, I didn't think it was bad, but it wasn't. Uh, I'm oh, so watchability. I would say C. It was neither amazing nor horrifying to watch. Yeah, that compelling scene at the end. I really did. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it just caught me at a moment, but it really like caught me tearing up that last <laughs> scene. That's so funny. Other than that, I was like, you know, it was it was neither here nor there. And then dealing with the topics, eh, it wasn't great. Uh, And they didn't really deal with forced sterilization much. They just kind of like brought it up and left it there. So I'll give them a D for that. Yeah, I'm going to give them a C, uh, I think, because I do think one plus in the episode was they were empathetic to the parents, at least initially. Yeah. Um, And sensitive to the situation since they didn't know what had happened really you know yeah and so while i thought it was a little naive (laughs) the way they did that i i i was like okay at least they're not you know doing the typical thing that they were talking about what happens in the episode where immediately this happens and we're possibly re-traumatizing people who have actually suffered a traumatic event so i'll give them a c just giving them the benefit of the doubt (laughs) all right Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the best thing you can do is rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you are currently listening to this, because it will help other people find us. Exactly. And the next best thing you could do is to recommend our podcast to a friend, because you have great taste, obviously, and people respect your opinions. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod.com. We love getting emails, so send us a note to say hello. And if you want to learn more about us or find information about our show, episodes covered, a link to our Patreon, merch, all of that stuff could be found on our website at rippedheadlinespod.com. Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you are supporting positive change in the world. And if you'd like another way to support us, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash N and Matt. Thanks for uh, listening to Rift from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.